Hello, welcome from the totalitarian state, the United States of America. We are here on a very short-term basis at our local uh, watering hole. We've been informed that this last call. It's <laughs> been informed that no one is allowed to meet here. We're waiting for the brown shirts to come in any moment. And ru ru are we rustle us into the street. We've we've got about three hours. <laughs> yeah, let's not that's exaggerate. Right. We've got that's three right. hours before the stormtroopers arrive. Right. Do, you, do you remember ET? Remember the the, the you remember the Spielberg film? Yeah. Do you remember when they come into the house and they're all in the you know the, the decontamination suits or the or the, mm -hmm. the suits the hazmat suits hazmat yeah. suits? Yeah. And, that's right. They get the whole house bubble. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's the United States of America right now. <laughs> the nation in a bubble. <laughs> so, uh, just, to, ju just to relieve your minds, we do plan to continue doing podcasts, but we will record them from our secret underground bunker. And it's um, got a bubble. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so... And, if you, and by the way, if you, if you hear... Uh, and an audience in the background today. Actually, we've got uh, some of Glenn's family here. Lynn, it's great to see you. Dave, it's great to have you here. Sure. And so if you hear them laughing, we're trying to max out the official limit to the number of people who can actually meet. <laughs> yep, so we're, and I believe it's we're five. pushing the limit now. So. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're having a lot of fun. It's what you have to do in a moment like this. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we, we're glad to have you with us on the Theology Podcast. I'm C.R. Wiley, the senior pastor for the uh, Presbyterian Church of Manchester that used to meet. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Every Sunday yeah. over on Lydall Street in Manchester. But who knows when yeah. we'll ever meet again. Yeah. But uh, anyway, we actually did shut down. We, we, we met Sunday. Tom was there, yes. one of the few intrepid souls to make it out to church. I did make it. <laughs> I braved the elements. <laughs> and so, but uh, the session has decided to be a, a team player. I'm afraid that we're in this sort of situation now where if you didn't do that, yeah. it'd be kind of uh, undermining your your work in the community. Is sure. that kind of yeah. you know sort of groupthink right now? Yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah. we'll do our best and not meet yeah, right. <laughs> by doing nothing. That's right. But uh, so Tom, tell us who you are. Uh, Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, doing both from my house, <laughs> online classes for. Uh, Used to be well, well still it's going on well theological seminary, um, but they they are from the house, and you know I brought the guitars out too, so I will oh, be nice. doing so I'll be doing some music in uh, this, this. Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff we're going to get to get to. Yeah, finally, that's you know, right. I'm, I'm going to get to a couple of bathrooms in a day. Yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. write the book. Yeah, yeah. You can write your book. I can work on my book. You got a book. I got a book. I got a bunch of books, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Glenn, tell us about your book and you. Yeah, I am Glenn Sunshine. I am professor of history at Central Connecticut State Online University <laughs> and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, which I've been doing online for a while anyway. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and uh, I have. Uh, I actually have multiple book projects going. The one that connects most directly here is with Canon Press. A uh, book on political theology. Nice, and uh, we actually have a show that uh, was dedicated to the theme 
can't Pro remember. Protestant we, resistance theory. Yes. If you, in fact, I think I was, that's our most popular show. I was looking at the numbers, and I believe that's number one. And there's, and there's nothing like a crisis to turn even the us academics and all universities into homeschoolers. We are in new times, new territory. And you're working on a book. I mean, I've seen your outline. and, yeah. and, and what, Describe a quick... Uh, well, it's dealing with sort of uh, evangelicalism in crisis, not only in the world in crisis, but evangelicals in particular. And the, the one particular book that I'm talking about is really dealing with kind of um, the way in which... Social theory, in particular, has eclipsed in many cases the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, but also looking at sort of some of the key moves that have happened in the the realm of theology that have helped cultivate the ground for that and made that uh, easy turf um, for alternative visions to set root and um, and really um, you know blur things. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and as, as some folks know, I'm working on a book on Tom Bombadil that I hope can be entitled In the House of Tom Bombadil, but uh, the Tolkien Estate will have something to say about that, I'm sure, seeing it. That's a chapter title for a chapter in Fellowship of the Ring. But anyway, I, I, I've been working on that. I got into chapter three. I've got about, I got about 11,000 words written. Oh, good. So it's coming along. But anyway, uh, to, the, to the theme of the day, today is my day. I, and uh, I'd like to talk today about uh, idiaphora. And basically, idiaphora is a uh, word that means indifference. And within uh, certain Christian circles, especially the Reformed world, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a term that's intended to convey, you're free to do as you please. You know, when it comes to this, you're free to do as you please. Yeah. And so far as that goes, that's okay. I mean, I, I, think, that's, I think that's right so far as it goes. Uh, my concern is that that's not as far as it goes. I think it, people take it much farther. And what uh, has occurred is, is a, a zone in the minds of some people of not just, you know, you're free to do what you intend to do or want to do, but that there are no standards that a Christian can use to judge what you do yeah. or that a Christian can use to judge what he or she ought to do. You're so free that, mm -hmm. you know, you're free to be a fool. Yeah. Now, when, when we think about the Reformed faith, you know, we think about, you know, two important emphases, law and gospel. And as we looked at Scripture, you know, we can see gospel... Uh, with the story of Christ, the you know the good news, of, you know we see uh, proclaimed in the in the New Testament. We think of law, we think of the, the Mosaic law, uh, and then it seems as though we have nothing that we know we, we don't know what to do with wisdom. You know, we've got Proverbs, we've got Job, but we're not really sure whether we should preach about that because they don't seem to really fit neatly into the law gospel you know dichotomy. And so, you know, we, we more or less treat Proverbs as, you know, if you're looking for something that's in the Bible that's not law or gospel, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. It's not, not that important. It was mainly for, you know, that, the particular writer and their child. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, so it, what, what's implied in this uh, as well is because there's this sense that this is sort of a, a, a zone, a value-free zone, then we can't judge, say, church architecture. Or we can't judge, 
uh, you know, various cultural behaviors. You might not even be able to have church architecture in some cases. Right, right. Um, or we can have anything and, and, and any kind of ugly, hideous setting is equatable with any other hideous particular setting. That's right, because it's all just taste now. Yeah. Because the, what, the, what this implies is that this is the realm of the subjective. Yeah. You're free to do as you please. No one has a right to judge anything yeah. that you say or do or make. You know. So now, now there is one. There is one situation that almost gives you like the, the, the you know, the, the pass or you know, like the. Mm -hmm. Remember, remember in high school you get a hall pass. Yeah. You know, you get a, you get a pass from the principal or your teacher, and you can just kind of wander the hall. Or you for get a, few a hold hours. of the hall pass. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what you have here is a pass yeah. to make the most hideous art you want to make, so long because mm -hmm. this is where it really matters for us, as you're sincere. Yeah. <laughs> As long as it brings a tear to the eye, so long as it's, you know, sentimental and mawkish and yeah. just sort of, you know, makes gram grandma happy. Now, yeah. some grandmas, like Lynn, has great standards. But some grandmas, it's like, it's, it's just cookies and, and, and flower fairies forever. But uh, I think that, I think that, you know what I'm getting at here. We, we, we say, well, who, we, we actually have this phenomenon in the church where who are you to judge? Yeah. What basis do you have for judgment? You know, it's, it's almost as though God just made the world without any sort of internal structure yeah. by which we could sort of think about it and evaluate it, evaluate it, and now we just allow the market, as you you love to say, Tom, yeah. sort of you know unreformed passions, yeah. unregenerate passions yeah. Yeah. that drive the church. Yeah. So what I want to do exactly, yeah. is call into question this whole idea that there's this moral free zone that people can just do whatever they please in and that uh, no one should judge them. And before Glenn steps up, so I know he's, <laughs> he's packed with information today. Um, it's going to take us to the Reformation. It's going to take us there. Um, but one of the things that ties us to this to past, I think, episodes, some of the earliest ones, for those who, who kind of joined later later on the way and, and maybe appreciate some of those, is, is this, can, this happens only in a place that you can have something that creates a space for that, mm -hmm. like a neutral space, mm -hmm. as if something isn't related to Christ in any sense of the word. It's very similar, I think, and this, I understand what people mean by this, and I, I do understand the good intent when people will say it's about a relationship, not a religion, because we're talking about a God who is personal, and we are talking about a God who, in Christ, comes through the Spirit to indwell. Um, this isn't sort of a, a deity that's, that's far off and unknowable in some sense. But what happens with that language is it basically, it basically then turns any sort of human way of relating to God. Oh, no, let me back up. It assumes that, therefore, human beings are not already in some sort of relation to God. Yes, right. That right. So, you know, it's about a relationship, not a religion. Okay. But it's a, it's, here's a way of putting it. Yeah. I remember, uh, you know, I remember Mike, Michael Horton said, yeah. you're in a relationship. It's a bad one. Yeah, it's the it's quality, quality of that relationship. That's, That's right. He's, he's right on. We all stand as creatures in relation to God. Not mm -hmm. only do we stand in relation to God, we stand in relation to the God who is Trinity, to Christ. Yes. We have a relation. Everyone has a relation to Christ. The question is the quality of it. Mm -hmm. Is it one of communion or is it one of 
on the outside, you know. So storing up wrath. Storing up wrath. And so it is that relation. That's why the question of Christ is the question um, of, you know, what, what say, say you of Christ. Um, but, but what you have here, then, is the whole creation at every single moment is in Christ, held together, right. held in place. Every creature stands in a relation of their being. They actually stand in the reception of being because we don't give ourselves being. So we're standing already receiving. This is why in Romans, Paul can say, the creation itself bears testimony um, to the invisible attributes of God. Well, how? Because the creation is receiving its being, not from itself, but from God. It's ontologically and existentially receiving what it has from God. Mm-hmm. But yet, rather than turn to what, what should have been the, the proper corresponding human action to that, which is gratitude and thankfulness, it becomes ungrateful. It starts to exact and seek from the creation only that which comes from God. That is kind of the, the source of all things and, and the plenitude and our perfection. And so what does that mean? Okay, in relationship to this, it means there isn't a something called an indifferent space. Every space is chock full of the invisible attributes of God. And the question, therefore, is the relation of every aspect of the creation to Christ in the proper way versus the improper way. Is it an idolatrous or a... a, a and, and this gets us to something, of course, that Abraham Kuyper said, and I know is an important... Uh, an important slogan for you, Glenn, because your your website is yep. named for it. You know the idea that you know every square inch, yeah. the lordship of Christ is exercised over a square, over every square inch. Now there are a couple ways to take that, though. Sure. Now what you've just described is Christ is Lord now. Yes. And always has been. Yes. <laughs> and what we've got in the gospel is the revelation of what's been hidden. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's a there's a way of thinking about that though that's almost uh, ideological. Yeah, yeah. Which is that this is a, a, a space that has no ruling authority mm-hmm. exercising, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, power over it. Yeah, and that we have to go in and take over. Mm-hmm. What what we're what we're doing as Christians is we're announcing what's mm-hmm. already the case. Yes, and we're telling rebels that they that they're living in a virtual reality. Yes, they don't actually have it. They're not in touch with reality. They're running short. Yeah, they run sh- and and there will be a point where the plug is unpulled, <laughs> and the goggles come off. I think we're doing good. Is it, is it possible to turn down the music just a little bit? That'd be great. Thanks. So anyway, that's that's a good entree to Glenn and uh, and a, and a, some less some history uh, on the Reformation and this and this term. Okay, yeah, the idea of adiaphora really comes into the Reformation because of the conflict that came up really early on between Luther and Zwingli. Um, Luther was a reformer in a large territorial unit, Saxony, you know, an entire province, let's call it. And he approached things basically by saying, all right, first of all, let's translate everything in German so people actually understand what's going on. And let's get rid of the things that the Catholics have that are violations of the gospel. We're not going to pray to Mary. We're not, you know, uh, we'll change our theology of a few items, that, that sort of thing. But basically, we'll keep things the way they were. Zwingli is from an urban setting. And in this period, there was growing literacy in urban areas with the net result that there was a real desire for a more word-focused religion rather than the kind of liturgical drama inherited from Catholicism. 
So Zwingli is going to have a really stripped-down liturgy, a focus particularly on preaching. Uh, this is going to affect his theology of the Eucharist because his focus is on preaching. Um, he is going to remove stained glass windows. He's going to remove statues because these things are distractions to keep you from the word. You know, you can you can look at the pretty colors or the statues or whatever and let your mind wander rather than really focusing in on the preaching. So you get these whitewashed churches and you know plain windows and all of that sort of thing. Well, Luther and Zwingli um, started debating a number of points with each other in print, and debating really means attacking each other in this context. <laughs> Those were the good old days. That's right. right. And so in... Um, <laughs> Twitter before Twitter. <laughs> so, but, but they also had to worry about the fact that there was a Catholic emperor out there. Ah, yeah. And Zwingli's ideas were beginning to spread in the imperial free cities, in the urban spaces, whereas Luther's were spreading in the territorial principalities. And they ended up uh, getting together at a place called Marburg to discuss this. Mm -hmm. And at the Marburg Colloquy, as it's called, uh, Luther says to Zwingli, well, you know, you guys are, are iconoclasts. You know, you're, you're destroying all the images. And Zwingli says, no, we're not destroying anything. We're removing them in an orderly fashion with the permission of the magistrate. Luther says, well, I like stained glass windows. Zwingli says, fine, have them. Luther says, you don't care. No, not particularly. Okay, well, what about organs? You, know, you don't use organs. You sing everything a cappella. And you only sing psalms. That's what we like to do. You want organs and hymns? Go right ahead. Okay, fine. That's, so these were issues that they could agree to disagree on. Um, they were adiaphora. Right. However, when it got to the Eucharist, they could not agree on the interpretation of the Eucharist. And that's the thing that's ultimately going to split the two of them. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this really comes down to an essential question in the period. How do you determine if a church is a true church? Or as they put it, what are the marks of the true church? And the Protestants said that there were two of them. It's where the word is rightly preached and where the sacraments are rightly administered. And then the question becomes, can you administer the sacraments rightly if you don't understand them rightly? And that's why they split. They say you can't. But what, that, what it comes down to then is that for the Reformation, as a way of handling ecumenical issues, those were the only two standards that they insisted on. You had to preach the word properly, you had to have the gospel, and you had to administer the sacraments properly. As long as those two things were in place, we could flex on the other stuff. And so that's really the roots of this idea of adiaphora. It's a question of what do we have to agree on and what can we differ on, in, mostly in terms of practice and things like that. Right. Even some, some occasionally some doctrinal things that aren't considered central to the faith. And, and noting that on the issue of the sacraments, they didn't agree. <laughs> yeah, they didn't agree. And, and, and this, is, this is the issue. When you don't agree on one of the essentials, you have no choice. You have to split. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that is functionally where this idea of adiaphora enters into the discussions in the Reformation. It really involves the question of what, ca what can we work ecumenically on, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, and what can we not. Mm -hmm. So the real issue in a lot of ways isn't so much what is adiaphora, it's what are the essentials. Right, right. Now, that's a great history lesson. Let me take us a little, a little further back, well, a lot further back, mm -hmm. go back to the, to the use of the, the term within uh, philosophy. So where we, where we see it initially introduced, 
uh, is in uh, cynicism. Now, today, when we hear the word cynic, we think of a person who's always sort of looking at sort of the downside, you know, yeah, the dark yeah. side of things. And cynic is a person who points out, you know, the, the dark cloud and misses the, the silver lining. <laughs> or even when there's nothing to point out, they'll complain about how bright the day is and how yeah. that makes them depressed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the, uh, cynicism is, has gotten, has acquired that character. But uh, the original cynics uh, were interested in controlling what they could control, much like, like the Stoics, and not getting too sort of caught up in what they couldn't control. So they tried to cultivate a, an attitude of indifference toward the things that they couldn't control, things like health, wealth, and so forth. Even more, they uh, actually began you know, to sort of distance themselves by, and this is where this idea of the cynic comes from, you know, bringing to the surface or pointing out the, it's kind of the downside of things that we'd normally consider to be good things. You know. It's worth noting that the word cynic comes from a Greek word which means dogs. <laughs> they were really not looked up to. No, no, they weren't. Yeah, barrel philosophers and all mm -hmm. that. There's a, of course, you remember that famous, that famous who was it uh, who was with, uh, the legend says that he's with uh, Alexander. Pyrrho. Yeah, so he's, you know, he's, you know, he comes to, to, to Pyrrho and he asks him, is there anything that you can do, that I can do for you? And he says, yes, move a little bit to the right because you're blocking the sun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, so anyway, so what you have is a kind of uh, Thoreau before Thoreau, you know, sort yeah. of like a, you know, the simple life, you know, sort of pare things down uh, so that you don't find yourself uh, subject to disappointment and pain and these different kinds of things. But anyway... So that, that's, that's what we have. In the, and I think there, there, there's some of that, obviously, in the teaching of, of our, our Lord. You know, when he talks about, you know, looking at, uh, you know, the lilies of the field, or when he talks about being content with what we have, or, you know, living for the moment and not being worried about tomorrow. All that stuff is, is stuff that, you know, we could say, you know, there's some, there's some overlap here. There's some correspondence. But the thing I'm concerned about is a kind of mental deadness. Okay, be, be, before you go there, sure. just, just a quick note. Sociologists of religion talk about there being two kinds of religion. Religions of orthodoxy and religions of orthopraxis. The basic way that you distinguish between the two is what causes fights in the religion. Are divisions in the religion caused by differences in how you practice the religion? That would be the case in, say, Judaism and right. Islam. Yeah, that's pretty Or clear. is it over what you believe, how you understand the religion? Mm -hmm. Christianity is your prime example of that. Yeah, yeah. So the issue of adiaphora frequently really revolves around practice because that is always a secondary issue within Christianity. It goes into some doctrinal things, mm -hmm. but overall it is primarily about practice. And this is, I think, where you're going to end up going here. Yeah, right. And my, my concern is um, this uh, sort of indifference to kind of just everyday life. You know, let's, let's, you know, think about, you know, things that, you know, particularly in the reform world that people will get exercised about. They, they tend to, to be things that... Uh, relate to or refer to 
whether or not a particular practice is explicitly required, yeah. you know, like stated, yeah. um, and or, or if it's not, then you know what what do we do if you know if that's the case? Often the reform will say, well, nothing. <laughs> you know, you know, this is the regulatory principle. We don't right. fill in the which, blanks, which is interesting because I mean, it, you know, people have noted, especially related to this issue, even in scripture. I mean, you have Jesus doing very different than that. The synagogue and him celebrating basically the equivalent of Hanukkah right. and other things, which didn't have the divi same divine origin of the other things. And oftentimes, the scripture says, as was his custom. And, and so you have him participating also as a human in that which is his custom. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't in conflict. It wasn't the same thing as, for example, the children of Israel taking a bull, making it Yahweh, and worshiping it. Right. It was something very different. So you have, you have a complex biblical picture to, to distill a regulative principle that doesn't at least consider that in it. It has to, has to you know, be looked at. Right. Now, if we, think about, if we think about worship as something that only occurs on Sunday and only in a corporate setting, mm -hmm. then it seems to me that uh, the regulative principle is something that is, you know, something that is providing us with some boundaries to keep us from idol worship. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right, that's right. right. So, uh, is that I-D-O-L or I-D-L-E? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of idols in terms of like worshiping ca you know, calves and things okay. like that. Okay, all right. Just, <laughs> just wanted to be clear. <laughs> but, uh, but I think that if we, if, if, we, uh, if we take that into our daily lives and we say... You know, after we get past things like, okay, the Ten Commandments, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to steal, and, and so forth. Then we get into this, this stuff that has to do with, really, kind of the substance of our lives. Uh, do we just say, there's nothing to reflect upon here, there's nothing to give us any guidance to, to help us make our way in the world. Let me just kind of bring it home for me. For example, uh, I'm known for talking about the household, the productive, you know, it's sort of productive property in the household and so forth. And um, uh, I've got a number of arguments that I've made for its, I think, uh, the wisdom of, of putting into practice the, the sort of the, the, the way of life that has been handed down to us from time out of mind. But if you were to ask, if, if someone were to challenge me and say, "Give me the, give me the chapter and verse. Why me? Why as a Christian need to be committed to that?" Well, I think there's a scriptural argument to make, but there's no proofed text, right? If you know what I mean. Well, and that I think that right there. I mean, there there is a place for proof text. There's also a bad place of proof proof text, and and that is, I think, in many cases, you you end up not being able. For example, scripture does not give you. You know, it, gives, it may give you a lot of wisdom, direction, guidance, and frame your moral orientation and spiritual orientation towards what kind of car to buy. 
mm-hmm. but it really says nothing about it. So is that a space of, you know, because Scripture hasn't talked about it, mm-hmm. or should you walk because Jesus walked? <laughs> I mean, that's how. I've heard people make that kind of argument. And they, they have. But, I mean, this is sort of where you're getting. I mean, you know, Jesus didn't own a house. Maybe you shouldn't own a house. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, it, get, right. it becomes this kind of thing. And it's, you know, it's a, <laughs> I'll never forget. John Webster said, just because Scripture says Jesus walked directly to the city didn't mean... He, it doesn't mean that he didn't happen to just so happen to stop and use the bathroom and go to the city. <laughs> you, have to, you have to read this stuff in a way. There's a, there's a hermeneutical you mean he did problem. do that? <laughs> I mean, Jesus well, had to do that? Yeah. The docetism. <laughs> so, you know, there, there are two things that occur to me here. First of all, there's there's a kind of biblical minimalism yeah, involved. Yeah, something that... Which is a technical term that it doesn't mean what I just used it to mean. But... Right. but What what it's saying is that the entire faith is reduced to what we see in the scripture and further that the only way to read scripture is in the, here's a mashup for you, historical, grammatical, literal interpretation. Right, right. That that there is nothing beyond just what it meant in its historical context in in strict grammatical and literal meaning. Um, you know, and, and you know, everybody, you know, we're, we're down on the medievals for all their allegorical readings. And all right, granted, a lot of them are pretty fanciful. But there's a lot more going on than just the surface meaning. And yet people who do this constantly insist on sticking just with the bare surface meaning. And the Bible itself, the word, is not in the Bible. Yes. <laughs> just, right, right. just to know. I mean, it, it's but, but that brings up something that's a, that I think that is sort of a default position for many people, yeah. and that is that, that God kind of lives in the Bible. Yeah. That there's not a real sense. Yeah. It's sort of like I bring God to the world through my faith. Yeah. Yeah. It's not as though God you know, yeah. is the, you know, the, the, the creator and governor, uh, yeah. the, you, know, prov- you know, providentially ordering all things. Uh, it's more like, you know, God just kind of introduced himself to the world when he inspired the writers of the Bible to write what they wrote. Yep. And this sort of this sort of approach to creation is, though it's silly putty, that's my favorite way of yeah. describing this outlook, that it bears the imprint of our will, but it doesn't come already sort of uh, impressed with the will of another. And I think that attitude early on had its, its shape in a different kind of heresy, and it was the one that Marcionitism that, that took the New Testament in relation to the Old Testament. The creator God who touched the creation, if you will, had to do with that ugly, nasty creation. Yeah, um, yeah. Couldn't possibly be the highest right. God. And so, so the, the, yeah, they want to talk New Testament, but here you have actually God become flesh. So they, they really... But they wanted to see that as sort of the introduction to the creation and the world itself. So, so rather than see in Christ the, both the light of the world that lights everything, but then also the full truth, the full manifestation. So yes, Scripture is the final authority in faith, practice, belief, understanding, because what it does is it manifests the heart of the matter. There is more going on, but here is the heart of the matter. And Scripture attests to everything else since the creation of the world the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen by the creation itself. Nevertheless, through idolatry, the giving over, judgment, that isn't clear anymore. But the, through the gospel, guess what? It becomes clear again. Mm-hmm. It doesn't become, oh, there isn't anything to that. No, it's now seen in the fullest sense in the light of Christ. 
So what you have, I always tell people, there's more to the gospel than the gospel. That's the God of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And that's what you get to know in the gospel. It's not just about having your sins forgiven, but what's the byproduct of that? Communion with God. Which, the, which one of the gifts of that? Knowledge of God. What's one of the gifts of that? Knowledge of all things in relation to God. Knowledge which of creation you, again. Which allows you to enter into the economic sphere or into the, you know, the sphere of the arts yep. with a discerning spirit which is looking for yeah. some, you know, uh, evidence for the truth or some sort of residue of it or something that is present that reflects this, this wisdom, the, the wisdom of God that is uh, ordering things. We, 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 we confess that uh, the Lord, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one uh, who, for, you know, who, through whom all things came to be and for whom all things were made, uh, and you know, the one who sustains all things. Well, there ought to be some evidence of that, you know, in, in the world around us. Or, or take it in a bit of a different direction. I know a lot of people who really get into the intelligent design arguments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I actually know people who reject them, which I find absurd as Christians. You know, Christians who will say, well, no, it's really Darwinian. Yeah, I, but, I know some of those guys. But, but in any event, the people who get seriously into the, the design thing, and you look at the intricacy of all of this, and what they see is this, the universe bears all the hallmarks of having been designed. Mm -hmm. And they understand that on the level of science. But they never take it to the next step and right. say, what else does this design point to other than a designer? It, is it telling us something about beauty? Yes. Is it telling us something yeah. about about um, wisdom is it telling us something about meaning in the right, world? Right. They they never talk about those. Yeah, things. I think what happens there is yeah. It's, uh, I, I know Dave Bentley Hart had a you know he's got problems, but this was an area he didn't have problems. I, one of his criticisms of certain forms of teleology, that is the view that things are show or ordering towards purpose, is that oftentimes it tries to contrast, for example, intelligent design within a cell, but it assumes that there isn't intelligent design built into the whole of being. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, similar to what you're saying, Glenn, is yeah. let's, let's push it from the, the, the intricacy of the cell, irreducible complexity, um, or the, 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 the brilliance of the human mind, its capacity to do all these, all these that we're fearful and wonderfully made. The fact that there is being itself bespeaks the fact of, I think, that moves it from merely that this has teleology built into it or, or that there's a designer to this designer is being itself in its fullest plenitude, which would completely encompass all of the transcendentals like goodness, truth, and beauty. Yeah, there are a couple of things I want to sort of uh, get into with, with respect to this. Our, our friends out in Moscow, you know, have, have produced a marvelous documentary called The Riot in the Dance Water. You know, N.D. Wilson is the, is the writer, and then, of course, Gordon Wilson, who's got a Ph.D. from George Mason and was, a, I think, actually a Ph.D. in environmental policy, which is interesting. And then he mm -hmm. taught at Liberty University, and now he's out at New St. Andrews. But uh, I, saw, I saw that on Saturday night, and then last night, Sunday night, uh, my wife and I watched a, uh, a BBC documentary on hummingbirds with hmm. David, David Attenborough. Hmm. 
And what was what was remarkable about the two, two things sort of laid mm -hmm. alongside each other. I mean, can you think of anything more beautiful? I think I'm uh, good for a coffee house porter. Say, coffee house porter. Coffee house. Say one more coffee. Yeah. 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 Do you want to sing? Another one. So what we have is, you know, we've got these two documentaries laid alongside each other. Both uh, had a lot to say about beauty. Hmm. Both had a lot to say about sort of the, you know, the way the, the sort of the ecolo ecological system, sort of the biosystems work. Hmm. Um, but... And then we're talking about hummingbirds, some of the most beautiful yeah. and fascinating creatures in the world. Yeah, they are. And David Attenborough is, is, you know, praising them for their beauty and then in a sort of schizophrenic way talking about how their beauty merely serves some utilitarian end. <laughs> you know what I, what I mean? You know, so, so that it, it, it's just for, you know, mating or whatever. Like going to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> but, but here we are looking at it from the outside. Okay, now what does that tell you? What that tells you is that the female hummingbird has an aesthetic sense. Yeah, and it means that I maybe have the female's aesthetic sense. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm but, just as impressed by this hummingbird as she is. Right, but, uh, but they never take it to that next step. It's no, a utilitarian purpose, but yeah. that utilitarian purpose must imply that the female has an aesthetic sense. And this is the wonderful thing that we see with, with Gordon in, in The Riot and the Dance. Is that, you know, he's clearly conversant in the the language the way the thought patterns that that we see mm -hmm. david attenborough reading about you know yeah. it's not like he's making yeah. this stuff up on the yeah, fly right yeah. <laughs> reading his keyword <laughs> he's, yeah. re he's reading so um but throughout right in the dance you know he continues to stress the joy that the animals must experience for for instance when the dolphins you know leap into the air and spin and then hit the water you know, this is play. Yeah, they're yeah. enjoying themselves. Yeah, and the same thing with the the humpback whale. Yeah. This incredibly large, you know, m you know, leviathan who just, yeah. you know, surges out. Of, in, they had they actually caught a, you know the the, the image uh, the, of this particular humpback, this male humpback, you know, coming out of the water. He came fully out of the water. Yeah. Wow. And then lands, you know, just on his side. And they say, "Well, these are the things that you know the the Darwinists say. This is to get the barnacles off." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's the now, thing. Now, the, now, maybe, the Darwin, maybe it is. Well, the Darwinists <laughs> often read read science the way that that a lot of the people I think that improperly read scripture read scripture. Yeah, they have more in common. This is the thing that a lot of these people need to get. Is is people? Yeah. I won't ma name names. Yeah, yeah. But there because are some, if you're out there, we're trying to... <laughs> there are some famous creationists who have more in common with Darwinists yeah. in terms of the assumptions about yeah. reality yeah. than I do. And the reductionism. Yeah, right. yeah. and I, actually, I want to try to pull this back toward the issue of Adiaphora. And the no! Church. No, no, Glenn, no, this, this is, is like a Scooby-Doo episode. <laughs> no, no. Oh, okay. All right, well, carry on. No, 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 we're joking. So what do you want to say, Glenn? Well, you know, what, what reality do you want to check us with? Where, 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 the, where this leads, I think, is in a view of worship that says that if it works, it work. If it works for you, if it makes you feel good, yes. do it. Yes. Where did we hear that one before? Yeah. Um, right. it, it, yeah. It, it's, it, it starts turning the worship of God into a utilitarian exercise that focuses on the worshiper rather than on the being who's being worshipped. Right. 
Right. Or the flip, mm-hmm. the flip side is is the reaction to that is the one that, that becomes uh, legalistic and prescriptive. It's almost like the like the Darwinian in that sense. Yeah. Right. Narrow reductionistic to which. So, you, yeah, you have creating the cre- conditions. I think that Paul always talked about the flesh as basically two things. It's legalism on one side and antinomian on the other. Yeah, yeah. For me, antinomian are just... And isn't, 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 it, isn't it fascinating that evangelicals manage to do both? Both. Well, and that's it. And so what we have, what Glenn was just saying, is that, that what I mean by antinomian here means basically where this vacuum of pragmatism or trend fits in. Mm-hmm. Um, un unshaped and unoriented towards created uh, kinds and, and ends and purposes, creation therefore just becomes a stage at which to put your show. Mm-hmm. Um, whichever show happens to do, you know, basically be marketable or, or mm-hmm. affect the, the current unreformed passions right, of the time. Right. Flip side is this rigid prescriptivism that says, you know what, there's no space for any human contribution to worship. And I, I have to remember that who bakes the bread and who right. is it that cultivates the wine? There's right. something very Pe- profound people, in, people. In, in that. It isn't grain and mm-hmm. grapes. Right. It's not even grain and grape juice. It's, it's, not, it's not even grain but, and wild grapes. That's right. Or grape juice. No, <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> but, it right. is, but it right. is bread and wine. Yep. Now, this reminds me of a particular episode. You know, the thing I'm, you know, I've, I've been kind of exercised about to this point is the fact that we take this this sort of biblical minimalism or this sort of prescriptive approach with regard to, you know, the regulative principle, and we say, okay, that means that as we go out into the world as Christians, we can't make any judgments about anything that's not explicitly condemned or explicitly commanded in Scripture. Uh, here's where kind of the rubber meets the road in, in, some, in, in one particular, you know, anecdote. When I was at my last church, our church was growing. I was on Cape Cod. We had gone to two services. We we had raised almost a million dollars for a, our building program. So we, we hired a, a, a design uh, build firm that specialized in churches. Now, get this. They specialized in churches. So we told them what we wanted. We wanted about 8,000-square-foot addition that would be a, basically a gymnasium, fellowship hall, an educational wing, and different mm-hmm. things. And... Uh, and by the way, I had to really work with my people a lot to, you know, sort of stress the importance of beauty and the importance of, you know, things that that lasted because we believe in a, in a God that's eternal and therefore we should do things that we hope will endure as long yeah, as possible. Yeah. And so anyway, I was using this kind of reasoning, and I, they kind of reluctantly went along. You know, they were like, ah, the pastor, he's into the beauty thing. Yeah, but yeah. anyway, so... And uh, one of those one of those guys. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the, the, this design built firm comes back with the first set of plans, and they roll them out in this big meeting, and they're just so excited about these plans, and I look at them and I blanch. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? What they had done is they had, they had given me a, a plan in which the new gymnasium would dwarf the sanctuary. Dwarf it. And I, and I looked at the guy and I said, what does that say? He looked at me like I had two heads. It's like, this has no moral you know, content. You know, this is just a building. And I was like, and you specialize in churches. Let me get this right. I said, what that says is the most important thing that happens in our church happens in the gym. Yeah, yeah. It's the thing that everybody sees. Yeah, sure. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that back, mm-hmm. 
and the, I don't want to even see the gym. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I want the sanctuary to be the most important thing that people see, or the most prominent thing that people see when they drive up to our church. And they did. Yeah. But it was only because I insisted, and I got mad. Yeah, yeah well. <laughs> I said, you take that back, yeah, and don't for, come back that until that's turning. hidden. <laughs> <laughs> now, we ended it with a beautiful gymnasium, <laughs> and it was a marvelous fellowship hall, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And it yeah. really was. I mean, we had floor imported from France, you know, just yeah. all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, but um, I was just, I was like dumbfounded. That, that the people who were drawing up, who the people who were designing the building had no sense that, yeah. that what they were making meant things, that yeah. indicated things or it signaled right. things. Yeah, and that, that's what we've been talking about is for I don't know how many episodes is the complete absence of meaning yeah. or people's grasp of the fact that the world means something. It's not just facts, it's meaning. Well, let's take another example. Let's take transparent pulpits. What does that say? It says the most important thing to look at is the preacher. That's what it says. Now, what is a pulpit? Is it a podium? What's on the pulpit? The Bible. Yeah. Attended usually. And, and, and just, so let me just say. Yeah. So yeah. that means the pulpit is something that the Bible is resting on. And what are we appealing to when we say that the Bible orders the church? Let me, let me give you an example on this one. At our church, which is, um, we're, we're, we're in the new building at our church. It was put up in 1761. That's right. Um, I've been there. Yeah. And we, we have this absolutely wonderful pulpit that's up yeah. on the wall of the church. Yes. You know, Very and, high. And it, it's high. Yeah. And actually, when you're in the pulpit, you can communicate with people in the balcony. You know, you can connect with them just as easily as you connect connect with people on the floor. There's an old-fashioned sounding board on top of it and all of that kind of thing. But on the pulpit, there, you know, it's a Puritan church, so it's whitewashed. It's one of these Zwinglian churches, sure. yeah, whitewashed yeah. and all that. But there are decorations on the pulpit that are supposed to remind you of the fruit of the Spirit. Mm. And on the pulpit itself, there's a Bible in the middle. And if you're, as you're looking at it from the congregation... On the right-hand side, there's an hourglass. Mm. And on the left-hand side, there's a candle. Mm. And what people don't get, because we're not living in the 18th century, is those are memento mori. Mm -hmm. They're reminders of death. Yes. The hour, the those sand will be showing up again. <laughs> the, the sand runs out of the hourglass yes, and the right. candle burns down. Right. And right in between them is the Bible. Mm -hmm. So the pulpit is there to tell the congregation that what happens when your sand runs out, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it depends entirely on what you do with the word from that Bible, what right. you do with the message that it's giving you. And it's a reminder to the, to the pastor right. that what he is preaching about is quite literally deadly serious. And oh, that's your, right. And in your church, literally, you can see out of the some of the glass, the graveyard. Right. <laughs> so that's right. Yeah. You're, you're, you're only one step from the graveyard. You're from the educational wing of your church into the sanctuary. 
Contemporary Past the Graveyard, which has floor-to-ceiling windows, so you can right. see and you there are there. a bunch of dead people over and for, there. And for the people out there, because they don't, may not know, the, the church you attend uh, is one Jonathan Edwards had attended once upon a time yep. during his Yale student days. So yep. uh, this is this is an area of very akin to theology that dealt with that immediacy of standing mm -hmm. over. All right now, let's get back to let's get back to this idea of a, of a glass pulpit. You know, what does that say? The glass pulpit says the most important thing that's going on up here is me. Mm -hmm. Walking around, and I don't want anything to get in the way mm -hmm. between you and me. Because it's all about us, baby. Yeah, yeah. It's all about me connecting yeah. with you. Which kind of gets us back to this immediacy problem. Yes, yeah. I want to get to this now. So, so when we think about the personal, now this is the downside of the personal. Yeah. The, personal, the downside of the personal. Is there a downside, Pastor Chris? <laughs> yes, there is. There's a downside of the Funny personal. you should ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what you create when it, when it, with this idea that I have com com complete sort of unfiltered, unmediated access to God is that uh, everybody else is useless. Everything else is useless. What do I need the church for? What do I need the What do I even need the Bible for? Yeah. That's what the Quakers did, and so and that's right. And and but what ends up happening is to avoid that is so many churches move to basically you as the pastor become basically the chief family therapist. Oh yeah, yeah. Now you now you're everything because yeah because <laughs> what has happened that their religion that relationship is no longer true religion. It's therapeutic. Yes. And when that happens, what you're doing is basically mediating. You're you're encouraging your patients in the congregation with all the things that they can latch on to to make their life fulfilling and get over the the, the ills of, of what it means to be a contemporary. This is, this is one of the reasons why people are just so astounded when they learn that Jonathan Edwards read his sermons. Yeah, yeah. You know, because how could you possibly connect with this monotone guy, and how is it possible yeah. the Holy Spirit could actually and use a guy like on to For those of you who don't know, Jonathan Edwards had what we used to call Coke bottle glasses, <laughs> you know, really thick lenses, and he tended to read in a monotone. Yeah. Right. And yet somehow the Holy Spirit still managed to work through him. Right, yeah. right. I saw something in the, the, the primary, my primary source of news, which is the Babylon Bee <laughs> yeah. uh, today, where... where they're, they're, one of the very few publications you can trust. Yeah, they're, 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 starting, they're starting to produce home smoke machines uh, so, so, that, so that the Holy Spirit can work in home worship since we can't go to church anymore. It's like the Leslie organ in the old Pentecostal church, right? right, right. Well, at least those guys could play. They could. They could. You're right. You're right. And yeah. they had that honky-tonk style, but it was kind they of gospel. Did. That's right. But, but, you know, one of the things that the, you know, the fathers would, would reflect on when we think about Lagos, you know, they would say, okay, Christ is the Lagos, but are there Lagoi? Yeah. And mm. if there are Lagoi, yeah. then the Lagoi, in other words... Okay, plural. for those of you who don't know Greek, Lagoi is the plural of Logos. Right. So the words of Christ, which yeah. means that there is some sense in which they proceed from Christ or they've gone out from Christ and they're ordering the world. And because, remember, the creation, what, what Christ is the one who is the... The, the, through him all things are made, and he is word, and therefore word 
lights everything that has been made. What is Genesis? But God speaks and it carries forth. It, it orders itself in accordance to speech. So for those that are in, and not so you know, equipped with the Greek, they get it from, from their scripture. Right. That is, it's, it's the same idea. And actually, Carl, even Carl Barth will tell you, Lagoy also has to do with the shape of time, not mm. just creation, but providence. Mm -hmm. there's, the, there's a distinct Lagoy to every, every episode, not of, only of space, but time. Okay. But, the, but the, what this does is it creates some space for the unbeliever to know in some limited way the Lagoy yeah. without knowing the Lagos. That's okay. right. That's and, right. And actually this raises, to, in my mind, an interesting question. If, in fact, all things are made through Christ, then is anything that is made insignificant? Does Absolutely anything not. that is made lack meaning, right. lack purpose, lack something beyond itself? Did, did Christ ever say, you know what, I just made that uh, hummingbird just <laughs> for whatever. <laughs> I just was like, you know, just looking for a little distraction. Well, what you see then is... Well, that was the platypus, actually. But what you see then is also, what was our initial, uh, one of part of our initial calling as human creatures, you know, to cultivate the garden, to bring things in, to, to unfold them according to the distinct kind logway. Right. Yeah, so, the, so there, are, there are the kinds that are made and then we come in yeah. and do the sub-creative work. And so mm -hmm. the question is, is does, redemption ex, does redemption exclude that aspect of our creaturely calling? Because I think when, when Scripture talks about us bringing all arguments, all things into subjection to Christ, is it not really the next, the redemptive shape of that that we are doing we are bringing all of creation to christ to unfold it not merely according to just its creaturely ends but to their fulfillment and therefore the way they refract the glory of god in everything that they are and that that's everything and that's the proper way of understanding kuiper yeah, yeah, I think that's and, right. And Aquinas, even though they have their oddities at right. different different this, and it's a, You know, what it brings to mind is, is George Washington Carver. Remember mm -hmm. George Washington Carver, yeah. the great American, you know, scientist and inventor and so forth, the African American, uh, you know, sort of genius, genius. Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, and he was a very devout man. Mm -hmm. And he would pray every day when he went into the laboratory. Mm -hmm. You know, God, show me your mysteries. Show, you know, mm -hmm. reveal to me your wonders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or you could look at um, at uh, physicist um, Maxwell, mm -hmm. James Clerk oh, yeah. Maxwell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he he prayed daily that God would would reveal to him his um, the the creation. He said that people who are scientifically minded mm -hmm. as Christians need to study. So that the glory of God would be revealed in a in a unique and different way than it is in any other way. Right, right. Now, when I lived in in Cambridge, you know, I was right halfway between Harvard and MIT. I, literally, I I could walk to Harvard. I could walk to MIT anytime I wanted to. Consequently, we had a lot of a lot of post grad guys in our church who were doing you know you know work at Harvard or MIT, you know, postdoctoral research. And a number of those guys were very devout Christians. And I would talk to them, you know, yeah. uh, you know, about their work, and they would pray over their work. There was one Pentecostal guy. This is wild. I mean, he was like in his particular field. He was just like a legend. Yeah. But he was also this tremendous enigma because yeah. some of his fellow scientists would ask him, you know, how do you how do you do this? How did you see that? And he said, I prayed about it. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, uh, well, I was. It's, I prayed about it. God revealed it to me. I was, you know, I spoke. Yeah, you know, as I always said, there's more going on in the sciences at Harvard than there are in the divinity school. In terms of <laughs> but I, I had been there at the divinity school, and I can I can testify to the truth of that. I was invited to speak to the medical community there, in the dental, dental dentistry, and, and medical community. Both the the uh, evangelical uh, evangelical group and a Catholic group both sponsored the event. And um, one of the things that they had uh, me talk on was the, you know, the significance of Christian understanding of transcendence. Um, they wouldn't have wanted that at the divinity school. They wouldn't I have. could tell you that they for would. a fact. But interestingly, I had 60 students show up to this in, at a lunch break thing. And, and they said the only reason you just had 60 rather than 200 was because they were doing, there was a, a, a joint series of lectures going on on, on social activism. <laughs> <laughs> But they said, still, with all of that, they, yeah. the, the community is so interested in this. And I had people in there, not just Christians, I had Mennonite, well, could be in, in that camp, but I had Muslims in there. I had oh, yeah. Jewish yeah. people in there, even yeah. though it was distinctively done. They wanted to hear the insight that we have for this. Why? Is it just because there's a spiritual vacuum? Well, there is. But on the other hand, these people know what existentially it's like to work with the gift of human life. Well, you know, and the thing that I think, you know, you've been, you were, you know, we've all been at elite, you know, higher, you know, institutions of higher learning and also at sort of lower level institutions. Here's my experience. The higher you go, yeah. the more sort of open and sort of confrontive the high-end Christians are. Yeah. They're yeah. not hiding. That's right. You know, you get guys like Robert P. George or oh, others, yeah. you know, and they're, they're, they're making arguments for the Christian faith yeah. and the Christian understanding of reality in public. Yeah. And, then, and then in other places, there's this sort of vacuum. You, and you wonder in those places, like, you know, I, when I was, up, I was up at Harvard, I think last year to see Patrick Deneen. You know, he was giving a lecture with the, the Thomist Institute. Yeah. You know about his work on you know, yeah. uh, you know what was the title of that book? Liberalism, that he, the failure of something. Yeah, something about liberalism. Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, that was a great that was a great experience, uh, particularly because he called me out in the middle of the the lecture, <laughs> and because uh, we're friends. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's like, yes. <laughs> that's right. He said, "Well, yeah, actually, he, he endorsed my book on the spot. Oh, good. He endorsed okay. Man of the House, and so I, I immediately got out." Uh, Amazon, and I saw my numbers go. <laughs> Order directly immediately. But anyway, but you need to introduce me around. <laughs> we need to have him on the show. You know, he's from Connecticut. He's from Bolton. Oh, he'd be excellent to have on the every, show. Every once in a while, every time I connect with him, I say, when are you going to be back in town? we got to get together with the gang. But anyway, uh, so, but I, I, do, I do think in those environments, when you get, when you get guys... You know, as you as you yeah. know, when you get in that world, I mean, at that level, it's not. You know, you're in an environment where, like, it's the heavyweights. Yeah. And, and and you know, here's here's the thing that I, I think that when you're in lower levels of academia, people f sort of feel a little bit insecure, maybe a little yeah. bit embarrassed because they always had hoped to get to the upper yeah. echelons. Right. When, when when you're at the top of your field, you just yeah. don't really. I don't think you, you don't really care. give a rip. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Harvey Mansfield. You know who I'm talking about, Harvey Mansfield, the guy, the the, the, the Harvard mm -hmm. uh, uh, professor who wrote on masculinity. Mm -hmm. Manliness was one of the books he wrote. Yeah. And, uh, he, I mean, he's just sort of like, he just doesn't care. It's like Charles Murray. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Well, and yeah. the thing is, I mean, I remember at a certain point when you get to, when you understand what you're... What, you know, as I always said, doing academic work, I did it both at Duke and Oxford, and so I understand what it means, the pressure to do work the best you can. But when you know your, your work, your, your 
interest better than they know it, or mm-hmm. as much as they know it, or as well as they know it, um, then you, you're able to hold your own ground. And even if you, you spat back and forth, they, they are, there's a different level of res- respect created. And most of the time, you know, they get a little weak need and invite you out for a punt af- pint afterwards <laughs> just because they feel, well, you know, may- maybe I was a little wrong about that. But, okay. but it, it's interesting that you say that, um, you know, that, that there is that. I mean, I, I remember, and a lot of people don't, you know, may not know this, but I, it was the strangest experience my time in Oxford because I'm expecting to go to the haven of, you know, the the Antony flu types. Yeah, know? right, right. And what I find there is, uh, is the strangest thing. It, there's a lot of evangelicals all mm-hmm. over Oxford in yep. every sphere. There are a lot of Catholics that are preaching the yep. evangelical gospel. I yep. remember uh, uh, so my friend Courtney. She's a Rhodes Scholar, the most devout Catholic. She comes walking down, look, I was planting seeds all day, you know, and I was telling all these people, they don't, you know, come to know Christ. You know, I mean, it was just this, this stunning. It was just a weird place. It's a weird place. And so here it's you because, are. It's because at places like the, if the A-team from every camp, the yeah. A-team from every you camp, did. and they're you just did. going at it. You do. You do. And, 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 and it's sort of, we just kind of, you, you kind of, oh, this is a great, this is, a, this will sum it up. I was not a huge fan of the liberal side of marriage. Marilyn McCord Adams, but she was a decent philosophical theologian. She's from the U.S., but she became one of these universalists and, you know, uh, right. just, just a lefty. But one of the, to- uh, one of the, um, the atheists at Christ Church College, while she was uh, in the chair, and she was actually teaching a brilliant course on, on Anselm, which was great, um, and he said, well, <clears throat> this is what he says to her at high table, he says, well, you theologians, you certainly have your presuppositions. <laughs> and, and she kind of cleared her throat, and she said... <clears throat> As well as you. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, she got right, that right. flushed English, right, pale right. look. <laughs> no, what's weird, but, but, but that brings out something that's kind of interesting. Is, and this is something that people in sort of mainstream evangelicalism don't, I think, have an appreciation for, is that the highest level Christian liberals are not like your Unitarian pastor down the street. That's right. They, or even your evangelical pastor. Yeah, that's, that's right. They have, a, they have an understanding of the, of the tradition often, and they also are willing to, to, to take stands that are unpopular stands yeah. you know, and get them into trouble. Yeah. And now, that's almost un, in, un, something that a lot of people... In a weird way, them. someone like her ended up having a classical doctrine of God, even if she had all the other wacky stuff. Sometimes you get weird, like I yeah, said. Marilyn Robinson com- is sort yeah. of in that camp, yeah. Yeah, you get yeah. weird combinations when you get into some of that stuff, none of which I recommend. But on the other <laughs> hand, on the other hand, it is just, it just shows you that the world is complex, though God is not. That's right. Anyway, we've come to the point where we need to wrap yeah. things up. Anything you want to say in conclusion, Glenn? I have no idea how we ended up where we got to, but <laughs> it was a, great conversation. It was a fun yeah. conversation yeah, anyway. Right, right, right. Anything you want to say as we conclude? No, I think time? we just about covered everything, <laughs> everything we can cover for, for dark times. Yeah, that's know? right. And if you, if you don't hear us next week, it's because we're in prison somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Somewhere in Connecticut, we've been yeah. you know, we've, <laughs> house prison or something. Closing, I don't yeah. know. We're going to have to open up a, a, a what are they called? A speakeasy. Speakeasy. <laughs> a Christian speakeasy. Right? I've actually been thinking about that. But anyway, uh, just so you know, uh, uh, we do want you to become a member of the Fight. Laugh Feast Network Club and uh, designate uh, the uh, podcast as your your favorite show. Uh, and we want you to, to, to download the, the FLF Network app for your phone. It's, it's available on 
on uh, you know, iPhone and uh, Android. And uh, we are uh, going to get going on this on this Kickstarter. Believe me, <laughs> I've got a little time now. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, you may see a lot of, a lot of things happen with this podcast and all the other things. That's right. Now. I'm looking to do stuff. I don't have anything to do. You know, that's something that was, was occurring to me today. I was thinking about the fact that we want our post to go viral, but that's probably not the right phrase to use right now. Yeah. And there's a good virus and a bad virus. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, well, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. We do appreciate your, your interest and support. We're we're always astounded by the number of people who reach out to us about the shows. We're, we're told how many people listen to us, and we still are kind of dumbfounded and we don't really believe it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, you're real. We believe that you're real. It's just that we, cannot, we just don't fathom uh, the size of the audience. But anyway, thank you for listening. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.